Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Theodore Joya. He is a writer and cultural critic whose essay in Quillette recently caught my eye and forms the subject of our talk today. Uh, Mr. Joya, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. All right. Well, your essay is entitled to expower the people. That is not empower them. We've heard empowerment uh, for, for a long, long time. No, this is to expower them. And it opens with a note about something that has happened in food journalism. What has happened in food journalism that, uh, that catches your eye? Well, like in so many other parts of society, and particularly arts, culture, and media, there has been a social justice reckoning or a, a woke reckoning where a number of new concepts and kind of moral at moral political attitudes have flooded into this previously apolitical genre and now all sorts of new and often uncomfortable conversations and debates have started popping up it has been slowly building for the last couple of years but it really came to a head last june in response to the George Floyd uh, murder and protests. What specific event happened? Uh, you, you, you referred to the case of the editor Bon Appetit. What happened there? He published a lukewarm letter about politics and food in the June issue, and this earned the ire of certain protesters and activists. And so they started digging into his career, and someone found a picture on his wife's Instagram from uh, many years ago showing her and him in brownface. And this was the match that ignited the storm. And after that, there was a, a huge wave of, of new accusations about workplace abuse and pay discrimination and a variety of other accusations. And what typically happens in these circumstances is there's the, the smoking gun, and then that kind of opens the floodgates for all sorts of any type of accusations, some of them very important to bring up, others that seem more marginal. You actually referred to one figure, the wine writer Tammy Teclamerium, I think that's how to pronounce her name, uh, where she, she's actually taken a few people down with her exposés. Is that right? Yeah, she's found a niche. Um, and so she was the person who initially uncovered the brown face photo and posted about it on Twitter. And within about 24 hours, Adam Rappaport, who was the editor of Bon Appetit and had really um, revitalized the brand uh, and really 
had turned Bon Appetit into one of the few food magazines that actually makes money. He ha- was resigning on Instagram about uh, 24 hours after the initial tweet. That was fast. Yeah, it's, I think one key aspect of this kind of X power phenomenon or what's often called cancel culture is that Twitter makes things move so quickly that there is no time to have conversations, dialogue. The brands just want to get this topic off the trending pages of Twitter. And so they often act incredibly quickly just to try to appease these crowds. And so this is kind of one of the the challenges of discussing uh, this phenomenon openly and figuring out how you can correct it, or maybe not um, re-channel its influences and its goals towards different uh, activities. One of the things that you call the sort of the ensuing pile on, you call it a public shame wagon, uh, where you get many, many people joining in. Is it as if everyone wants to get in a lick? You know, that they, 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 they feel, I mean, do they feel, apart from actual victims of, of, of some discrimination, or do you find other people joining in out of other broader resentments? I'm Catholic, so I think that people are a mixture of good and bad. They're neither entirely one or the other. So in any of these movements, there is a mixture of motivations and incentives. And so often it's there's just small grievances. That's often the people who have this happen to them are just very unpopular with their staff and are often rude. And so people take the opportunity to kind of pile on. And then there's another group of very legitimate grievances that often have statistical and tangible evidence, as we saw that there was a pattern of paying employees of color uh, less than other, significantly less than other um, white co-stars on their, on Bon Appetit's very successful YouTube channel. And so what ends up happening is that all of these things get mixed together and it becomes difficult both for critics to talk about, to isolate the parts of this phenomenon that are negative and need to be combated and also for proponents sometimes where they where you have a mixing of very minor grievances in the same category as major grievances and it sort of diminishes in my opinion now this could be heresy in certain circles but i think that when you have the people arguing about being called the wrong adjective once that diminishes what is essentially like true uh, pay discrimination and those shouldn't be in the same category and typically as in the case of, of, of a few of the people that you mention, they, they apologize very quickly. And it, it, it's strange, their careers, I think you mentioned the LA Times uh, person whose career is destroyed. He, he is out. He wrote, uh, this is Peter Meacham. And you use Peter, Meehan, Meehan, yes. You say that Tammy... Teclamarium tweeted a series of allegations about Peter Meehan creating a toxic culture at the LA Times food section. Cue confessionals, Twitter outrage, and ultimate resignation, you write. Two days later, Meehan posted a statement that began, I'm leaving the LA Times, and concluded, This moment is about changing, challenging, and making things better. What, what is Meehan doing right there with that with, with that trying to give a positive spin to a horrible thing that, that that's that he's suffered at least in this case 
this is one of the puzzling things where I often think of social justice as a certain sense Christian ethics expunged of the possibility of redemption. And I, what often happens in these uh, circumstances is that even if someone, uh, even if your career is over, you're required as a good progressive, as a, by following the kind of letter of the law to uh, admit your fault, to admit your sinfulness and accept it as a, a sign of, of progress in the world. And if you don't, then it's going to prevent you from possibly getting other jobs and hurt your, your status even more in the field. And one, just for a little bit of background, so about a month after the Adam Rappaport, then uh, uh, resignation, then Tammy Teclamarian went into researching Peter Meehan and also found a series of inappropriate advances towards certain female colleagues and general just sort of being, uh, generally being a jerk. Yeah. And what was interesting is that both of these gentlemen, Peter Meehan ran a very successful food magazine called Lucky Peach and was one of the people who really invented or reinvented food journalism and then was hired to fix or not to fix, to lead this kind of newly revamped and newly uh, funded LA Times food section. So this was one of the two or three best food sections in the country. And the same thing with Adam Rappaport was came in in this really kind of redefined aspects of food media. But there is not much forgiveness if you if you make these mistakes. And so that's it's interesting of all the things. This is the, the thing that will take someone down. Now, you don't like the term cancel culture. This This really gets to the title of your essay. What's wrong with the term cancel culture. And well, why is, I mean, you can keep talking and say, why is X power a better descriptive term? Well, one thing that's curious to me about the current internet rhetoric culture is why are we just going with the, why are we as critics and commentators who are tasked with guiding language in the most descriptive and insightful ways, just going to seed that past to Twitter? Like, oh, whatever the most popular hashtag is, that's what we're going to call it. And it, to me, it just feels this is an abnegation of responsibility on a lot of critics' parts. And accordingly, I think you need terms that actually really define and capture the, the emotional and political goals and agendas behind this cancel culture impulse. And what I found is I found that X power is just more realistic, it's more accurate, and it captures the notion that the thing that is central to a lot of social justice activism and social justice thinking is power. It is all about power and power imbalances. So it's, it's very, I think this, and I also find it rolls off the tongue. I, I like X power, empower. There's something about it that I just think captures the ethos more accurately. One of the Remarkable statistics you bring up in the essay is that 55% of 18 to 34-year-olds have in one way or another joined in to an expowering or canceling process. That that seems very high, but but you think that's correct. Canceling is uh, canceling or expowering is a process that goes across different sectors of society. For younger kids and and younger college students, you'll hear they're trying to cancel one of their friends, cancel a professor. They cancel someone on Twitter. There are, there's always a, a hashtag trending about someone to cancel as a celebrity. So a lot of canceling is just simply you are piling on to the bandwagon of the day, or you're going to send some tweet about someone who 
has made the mistake, uh, who's made the error that day. And so it's not a huge moral commitment off, uh, often. And so it's a little bit different than the people who are actually employed at something like Bonaparte and therefore risk part of their career or job security by speaking out publicly. A lot of the canceling has to do with just signing an online petition. It's uh, what they call slacktivism. <laughs> slacktivism. I don't think I've heard that term before, but it, it certainly, yeah, all you got to do is it just takes one little click to, to join in. It's so easy to do and uh, painless. No, no sacrifice required. And in the middle of these campaigns, in the middle of these sort of expowering or canceling campaigns, what ends up happening is that all the people who might support someone have to be silent by definition because they would risk themselves if they were to speak out. And so often when you read the accounts of people who have been expowered, who have been fired, what ends up happening is that you, you hear they get lots of private emails saying, oh, what's happening to you is unfair. Now I can't say anything or I agree with what you're saying, but like, you know, I, I can't risk my career. And so what ends up happening is that there's a, a vocal minority that really control outsized portion of the kind of public rhetoric and conversation. Right, right. Well, you, you call expowering in a sense, quote, a utopian dream. What do you mean by that? A, a fundamental belief or fundamental difference, I think, between liberals and conservatives is that conservatives do not think that human nature is inherently perfectible. They think it's fallen. And pursuing perfection will often lead you to more destruction or, you know, more danger than, than reform. But for progressives in particular, there's a notion that it's either utopia or nothing. And, and if things are not perfect or not and not ideal, then you must destroy and continually destroy, have revolutions, and then build towards this kind of perfect tomorrow. And one of the things that's dangerous about that, right, is that we have no sense about what, what this perfect tomorrow would look like, how we could even recognize it. And so even though we're living in a, a culture right now that is perhaps more tolerant towards a variety of different identity and minority groups than ever before, and we see our, we're seeing more and more success for a variety of different groups. And like, I'm a, I'm a gay man. And if I could pick anywhere to be born, any country, any time, I'd pick America right now. Hmm. But the, the rhetoric that kind of poses, that often has this impulse to over-exaggerate how thing, bad things are, will present today as though it's some sort of unprecedentedly bad and unequal time. So it's an interesting... Uh, mix and contradiction these two impulses. You go into a little bit of the history of empowerment uh, in, in your piece going back going back a few decades. Uh, what are the pertinent highlights of the history of empowerment that should give people optimism and, and confidence about how how things are better for, for many groups than they used to be? Yeah, um, I think one thing the one thing I would stress is that I I may have come across as overly critical of certain advocates and social justice activists in the first part of this podcast. And really, I think a lot of them are actually just trying to be good. And this is the rhetoric for being a good moral human being that the secular world has given them. And so one advantage of the term expowerment is that it rhymes with this other term empowerment, which we hear so often. And empowerment started as a kind of radical concept in the 70s, particularly in, among black and queer activists. And then it kind of rose through the ranks and 
entered the international feminist movement in the 80s, and then in the 90s started moving into the boardroom. He starts hearing about empowering kind of corporate leaders and a variety of other groups. And then by 2000, by, by the new millennium, now it's just everywhere. It's in selling concepts. There's a, a stat that I like that there's over 10,000 results for the book, uh, for books with the title, with empowerment in the title in Amazon catalog. And at this point, it's clear that it's drifted pretty far from its original meaning. It's gone from supporting, you know, uh, impoverished women in Peru to now empowering affluent suburban women in in, uh, in middle America. And so it is this as a political concept, as a political ideal, has not achieved. It's sold out, basically. And so now to make something new. You say that there's a widespread conviction that empowerment failed. Now, is that because it, it, they feel empowerment has been co-opted by people who really don't need empowerment? Or is it because while certain rights have been, have been gained and, and discrimination lowered, that we still see things such as blacks vastly underrepresented in professional spheres? Is it, which is the failure? Or both, maybe? I, mean, I think it's for activists, uh, and for people, uh, for social uh, justice, true believers, it's a mixture of both personal and political. So at a personal level, they want to be involved in something that's exciting and gives them that emotional fulfillment of feeling like they made a difference and they helped change the world. And at a political level, without a doubt, huge outcome gaps exist across groups in America. And that is a cause for concern and is a cause for serious reflection and consider about what we can do to really create um, much greater equalizing of opportunities for uh, all groups and people in America. But I think one of the, the challenges are is that I would say that in general, conservatives have a tendency to understate the problems in America and re liberals have a tendency to overstate the problems of America. And accordingly, if you're on one of these Twitter feeds or an Instagram feed where all of you, all you get is what the algorithm sends you is just all sorts of the latest stats and scare stories about the, the horrible uh, disparity gaps and outcome gaps in America, regardless of whether or not that is true on the ground compared in a, a bigger historical perspective, your day-to-day -day experience is just an endless parade or endless campaign of disparities and disappointment. You lead into some of the irrational elements of the, the expowerment process, however much they might begin with an empirical element. You say that they often lead to, quote, the digital rage mobs and hate junkies flock to the blaze of scandal hungry for blood. Is, 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 that a, is that a significant component, this, this irrational sort of mob, mob mentality? I think that irrationality is an equal opportunity employer across the political spectrum. And so there's always a group. When you get into group and mob dynamics, there is a sense that you're just looking for the next target, the next image or symbol of oppression. And so what the danger of of making the image of reform expowerment rather than empowerment is that you just, what feels like reform is not passing a law that increases uh, healthcare benefits or something for, for working mothers, but is taking someone down. 
So the pursuit of taking someone down all of a sudden becomes a moral action, a way to improve the world, a way to make it um, less oppressive. And so accordingly, it, uh, it channels people's emotions and incentives and all of that mix of, of good and bad feelings uh, or you know, positive and negative uh, kind of incentives towards this one type of action. And accordingly, is that people, I think, almost addicted to the feeling of it. You call the eventual takedown of a culprit a, quote, sacrificial event. Why is that? If you're a company, you need to move on and make and start making money again. And, and you don't want this to define your, your, <laughs> define your brand for the next, you know, couple of years. So you need to have some sort of big visible change. One of the key differences is that, is that it's all, there's this obsession with the visible for this movement. They're looking for visible signs of these invisible systems of oppression. And accordingly, the change also has to be visible, which is difficult because a lot of the actual outcome gaps are, are you know, invisible. Nothing looks different in my life necessarily if the test score gaps rises 2% or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's an interesting thing that you are trying to affect something that is an invisible problem. But then for you to feel satisfied as, a, as an activist is you need a visible sign of that progress. The one thing that you add here is that it's very, very hard to figure out how to keep this honest desire for social improvement from degenerating into acts of, of personal vengeance and, and mob mentality. What, what, what can be done about that? One of the things I tried to show in this article, and one of the interesting things about, the, uh, about this Bon Appetit case, is that it doesn't really work um, often. And so what ended up happening uh, in this case was that they reviewed all, uh, Bon Appetit as a company reviewed all, or Condé Nast, which owns Bon Appetit, uh, they reviewed all the contracts of uh, the contributors of color and the white stars on their YouTube channel and ultimately decided that they were not going to give increased or equal contracts to the contributors of color because they can, because uh, according to Condé Nast, those contributors did not get the same number of page views uh, for and video hits for, for the YouTube channel. And then ultimately a huge slew of well-known uh, contributors of color, including Priya Krishna, Sola Awaili, and the only uh, black members of the editorial staff just quit about two months after Adam Rappaport's resignation. So you saw that there was this big cycle where people were elated, the, uh, the kind of staff at Bon Appetit, who was very liberal, elated by this great symbolic victory for progress. And then the machine of the actual institution of the company started to, started to work. And then at the end of it, they realized that, oh, the actual reforms we asked for didn't come to being. But what they did instead is they hired a very accomplished and talented um, black female editor-in-chief last fall. So what ends up happening is that it, typically you see this symbolic move or change to ameliorate the problems, but the substance of the reform is left by the wayside. What kind of reaction have you gotten from the essay? Um, it's mixed. Um, one of the interesting things about publishing on Quillette, and I chose Quillette because it was... But what a free speech plot. I thought it was if you're trying to reach people who care about free speech right now, this is the place to go. I intentionally was neither. I tried to be very aggressively nonpartisan. Actually, this interview has probably revealed a couple of my own kind of 
my own uh, feelings about ex-powerment and cancel culture, but I was trying to give an honest descriptive account of it. And then something that would, if you were a kind of a moderate liberal, you'd be able to read this and say, huh, I need to rethink some of this. So the libertarians tended to be angry in the comments because I, I didn't call this like the, you know, the second coming of the third Reich or something. I didn't go that far. And then for liberals, it probably was not aggressive enough. But I get I get a couple of emails um, every day just from various writers I know who are around my age and who said, oh, like I'm talking to a comedy writer later today. He just wants to talk about free speech for an hour because he's worried about it. Yeah. And so one of the interesting things about Twitter discourse is there's certain types of articles that trigger a visible Twitter argument. And then there's other things where people silently think about them and reflect on them and then send you emails afterwards and you start conversations. And so I don't know what article is more, what type of article is more valuable, but this is, you know, maybe this is the first part of a multi-part critique or essay series about thinking about how we can defend free speech and certain types of values within this kind of rising culture. Are, are you going to write about this again, actually? Yeah, I'm, there's a couple of small, more personal examples that I think are very interesting. Like I cut a section, actually a, a section that uh, was partially inspired by a dinner I had with First Things editor, Rusty Reno, about the degree to which X-powering has become this a mentality that it, it, uh, pervades the academy. So there's certain types of very extreme scholars who want to X-power everything. They want to uh, X-power concepts like uh, rationality or science or even God. And so there's something where this is like this, this concept, uh, it's become a, a fundamental drive of critical theory and kind of social justice movement is this that we you need to purge the uh, systems or, or, or symbols of oppression, of, of negative power, of unhealthy power, and that that is what's going to usher in reform. And that's a concept that uh, I think is unhealthy. And if we can get people to look at just the results, perhaps they can start to reconsider if this is truly the best way to fight for change and social improvement and reform in American society today. The essay is To Expower the People. It's on Quillette's website. Theodore Joya, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. 